Over the next four weeks, we're going to leave 1 Timothy. We've been on this march through the pastoral epistles, working our way through 1 Timothy to 2 Timothy, and ultimately rounding out in the nice short book of Titus. But we're going to take a a four-week break as we begin to peel back and take a look at what is our identity. Really, who would who would God have Ridgecrest Baptist Church to be? Who would He have us look like? What would He have us emphasize? And where are we, where are we going? And see, as I prayed about this, as we begin to, to search these things out, we centered really on three characteristics that you find over and over and over again in the Bible. And these three characteristics are centered on three words, grow, serve, and go. This idea of, of spiritual growth, of growing in maturity to Christ, you see over and over again in Paul, you see Jesus make reference to, to finding our perfection, to finding our end in spiritual maturity. And we recognize that it is a lifelong journey that begins at salvation that isn't realized until either the second coming or our demise. The second component we see over and over again, both in the Old Testament and in the New, is this idea of service, that that God didn't come into our lives and save us so that we could sit back and say, man, this is really enjoyable. I like to hang out on the beach. I think things are really comfortable for me. But he saved us so that we might join with other members of the body and serve, that we might find ourselves spending our energies, that we might find ourselves spending our, our, our finances, right? Using from our point of spiritual gifting, talents, and using also those things that God has entrusted us as stewards for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. And then we look at a third component, which you see evident in, in the nation of Israel, you see evident in the New Testament, this idea that God saved us that he made us a people who were once not a people so that we might share about that. That tied up in this idea of this great God who is on mission, he is on mission calling us into relationship with himself so that we might communicate that relationship to others. This idea of an evangelistic zeal. And then finally, we will have a Sunday where we talk about how these things incorporate themselves or find themselves in worship. You see, too often when we speak of worship, we speak of of contemporary or traditional worship, but we are missing the heart of what worship is if we limit it thus. You see, worship is a life response back to God, and we need to see how these ideas of spiritual maturity, we need to see how the idea of service and see how the idea of an evangelistic zeal and taking the message to others fit inside what a life of worship is. And that's, that's where we're going. We're not setting out some bold new campaign. I'm not going to get a haircut and wear jeans with, with cut-out knees and patches or, or whatever things trend. But we're going to, in some ways, get back to the basics of Christianity and find, find ourselves on the pillars of growth, service, and broad and bold evangelistic zeal. And today, as we begin to look at the first of these three components, we find ourselves studying Christian growth, spiritual maturity. It's this idea that when you are saved, you are a babe in the faith. Not, not babe as in somebody that walks by and says, man, she is one stone-cold fox babe. But babe more in the idea of you are a child, you don't know how to process things, and you are set on a journey of coming to know 
in a better and better way just who Jesus is and just what he demands for your life. And the more you come to know him and the more you turn your life over to him, you see him claiming greater and, and more expansive areas of your life, areas of your life that you thought, I'll never give that over because you weren't even aware that they existed. But he lays hold to every fiber of our being, every hidden compartment of our heart, every wish and dream that we claimed as ours and said, surely he won't find this. Jesus is systematically moving in, setting up shop in our hearts and changing us from the inside out. Today we begin our study on spiritual growth. And we're going to be looking at it from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, which were read earlier in the service. Now, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, which is awfully convenient to us, because as we study 1 Timothy, we realize that Paul is there also writing to the church in Ephesus. But Paul is writing them, and he's primarily concerned with this idea that they understand what is happening inside them. He wants them to understand the role that Jesus would play in their lives. He wants them to understand how that it is shaping and, and making them into a people. And he also realizes that they are concerned for Paul. The Ephesians have some concern because Paul is in jail at the time of his writing this letter. And so he starts off and he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. See, as Paul thinks about the church in Ephesus, he goes before God. When Paul thinks about them and thinks about the struggles and all the things going on in their lives, he doesn't write them and say, hey, let me give you five points that are going to be a great encouragement to you that will transform everything about you. Instead, Paul recognizes that the most important thing that can happen to the church in Ephesus is that people get the idea into their thick, thick skulls that God is the one who can affect change. And so Paul goes directly to God, and he tells us that he takes the posture of bowing on his knees before the Father. Now let that image work its way into your mind. We've got Paul shackled in jail. He's not in the lap of luxury. He is shackled in jail and Paul is on his knees, head bowed all the way to the floor. And the way that he writes this, the way that he describes this bowing down in prayer, we see that it is a repeated action. Paul found himself over and over and over again, going before God and praying on behalf of the Ephesians. Now check out, how does Paul reference the God that he prays to? Paul says, I bow down on the ground before the Father. Before the Father. Paul is saying, look, this is, this is what you need to know about God. That this God who created the universe, that this God who spoke the very existence of, of you and me in the oceans and the mountains and the skies and the depths and the seas and the birds in the air, this God I call Father. This God I have a relationship with. This God who transforms everything. He's the one that I speak to on behalf of you. And this is the way that I approach you, with humble humility, with eager expectation, and with a sense of urgency. 
And Paul goes on to show them how they fit. He says, this God who is Father, this one who I bow and pray to, he is the one whom every family in on heaven, every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul speaks to the Ephesians and he says, look, you know that there are people in your community that do not worship Jesus. Man, as we sit here today, you work with people, you have people in your family, you have people you run into at, at Brahms or, or Brookshire Brothers or any of the very places you go, and you know that there are people who do not love Jesus. And this is the word Paul tells them about that. Paul says, look, they may not love Jesus, they may not even recognize God, but God is the one who created them. God is the one who gave them life. God is the one who sustains their life. Already Paul is driving hard and fast at this idea that even those who are in opposition to God, God loves them still. Paul is, is driving hard at the idea that even that those who would, would put out their hands and say, no God, not in my life, God loves them still. He created them still. He knows them intimately still. Paul, as he moves through this portion of the letter, gives us some things, some characteristics that he prays for on behalf of the Ephesians. We find in verse 16 that he says, "...that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being." "...that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened." Now, Paul writes, and this is essentially what he's saying, you guys aren't availing yourselves of the strength that resides inside you. He is working through and showing them the inner strength that they have. Now, Paul doesn't write them and, and say, look, what you really need to do is, is to get up you know, 30, 45 minutes early, read the scrolls, have somebody read the scrolls to you, rehearse the things that I said to you, uh, you know, a 15-minute cardio workup of prayer, and then you know, round out the day with some contemplative meditation on the face of Jesus. And you're going to be strengthened. I mean, I'm just telling you, you're going to have the, the spiritual, spiritual whatever component or the spiritual likewise or the spiritual whatever the word it is that's in my head that I can't seem to articulate right now. Component, let's go with that. You're going to have the spiritual counterpart. Man, that was rough spiritual counterpart of, of six-pack abs, whatever that looks like, that if, if you abide by this thing, that's what you'll have. Instead, Paul recognizes. He recognizes that the Ephesians left in and of their own devices, they're going to atrophy. Left in and of their own devices, they can't get closer to God. It doesn't matter how much Bible reading they do. It doesn't matter how much time they spend in prayer. Without a move of God in their lives, they are lost. Without a move of God in their lives and a strengthening of God in their lives, that there is no way they can get closer to God. This is the amazing thing. The source of their strengthening. The source that is going to strengthen them in their inner being, the source that is going to transform their inner being, this Holy Spirit working in their lives, the resources that God pulls from are infinite. Paul tells us that he is doing this according to the riches of his glory. Now you can think of the richest person that you've ever heard of. 
You can say, well, Bill Gates is the richest person I've ever heard of. Another person can say, no, 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 it's that Jimmy Buffett guy. He's the richest person I've ever heard of. And the next person says, no, no, you mean Warren Buffett. Jimmy Buffett, Margaritaville, Warren Buffett, uh, I mean, Megabucks. And so you say, okay, okay, well, that's who I meant, Warren Buffett. He's the richest person I've ever heard of. But whether it's Jimmy, Warren, or Bill Gates, when they spend money, they don't get it back. Now, they are making money, and they're adding money on top of it, but I'm telling, you, I'm telling you this. When they spend money, if I write a check for a dollar or a million dollars, or as these men could, a billion dollars, they are losing value for what they have. I mean, that's how our concept and our understanding of riches work. Every time I go eat at tamales or go to the store and swap my debit card, I realize that there is nothing magic in that card that I'm removing funds from an account. Fingers crossed, this thing's going to work. And as I do that, my fund balance is going down. But this is what we see. This God that is working in the Ephesians to strengthen them, this God who is moving to empower them, that as he strengthens them, that as he pours out from the storehouses of his glory and builds them up, that the balance does not go down. That there is no less to give to the Ephesians. That his balance is infinite. So this prayer that Paul has for the Ephesians, that they might be strengthened, he paints this beautiful thing, that look, God is working in your life to strengthen you. And he's working in your wife's life to strengthen her. And he is working in this body to strengthen each of us corporately. And that does not diminish its effectiveness. That does not reduce his ability to work in any other church, in any other Christian, whether here in Greenville, all around the state of Texas, or in Timbuktu. That God is working in each of us and it does not diminish his character. It does not reduce his effectiveness. Paul says, and this is the purpose for that. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. God is is moving in you. He is strengthening you through the power of His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This this amazing thing. That God is, is moving in your inner being. And we see that Paul writes that that Jesus comes in and he takes up residence in your heart in salvation. Now, I don't know how many of you have had someone come and stay with you and you say, well, you know, I I, I know what it is to have a guest come stay at my house. They, They sleep on the couch, we give them a little pillow, or maybe you've got a guest room and they come and they bring their their toiletries and they've got it all compartmentalized, you know, and so they're in, you know they're there. But once they leave, life returns to normal, right? Or maybe you've had the guest that comes in and they stay and they walk through your kitchen. They wake up before you do and they're, they're fixing coffee and they walk in your kitchen and they open up a drawer and something in their mind says, utensils shouldn't be here. Utensils should be on the other side of the kitchen. They, I don't know why they made this mistake. Because they pull all your utensils out of that drawer. They walk over here in your kitchen. They open up that drawer and they're like, Markers! Those go in the, you know, the quilting room or whatever. I've got to move that too. And so they open up this drawer. They throw your utensils in here. They walk to the, to the quilting room, and they walk in there, and they say, Oh, baby room, this was a bad idea. And so by the time you wake up in the morning, you walk out, and what was your living room and your, your, 
your, your fortress of solitude and your arena of sports and your, your theater and everything that you ever have, you walk out and you've got lace frilly pillows. And you think, what? I mean, this is not the home I fell asleep to. And you go in the kitchen and you pull something out of the fridge and you go to get a knife to cut it up and you open it up and you're like, markers? This is not where the markers go. Or you're like me and you're like, I guess I'm in the wrong drawer. I don't know. And then you go over here and you open it up and you're like, oh, still, where in the world am I? Oh, well, I'll just break it. And so it's this idea that when Jesus comes and he sets up room in your heart, you see, we have this idea that, that he comes in and what we want him to be is a stayover guest. What do we want him to be is this guest who comes in with toiletries and he's got everything compartmentalized and he sits in this one little area, in this one little spot of our hearts. He doesn't come into our kitchen, he doesn't move stuff around. We say that when Jesus comes into my heart, he respects my stuff, he respects my space. But understand this, Jesus comes into your heart and he sets up residence there. He doesn't just come to visit. And he is systematically moving through your heart. And he's opening up drawers and he's opening up cabinets and he's opening up closets that you have closed off, all the junk that you have stored in there for years, all the sin that you have tucked away under beds that no one can see it, all of the doors you close because you do not want people to know it exists. He's got the blueprint of your heart and he lays it out and he knows what your heart needs to look like. And he is changing your heart to become a home. He is changing your heart, and he is doing it by the process of faith. You see, in salvation, you came to know Jesus through faith, and it is through faith that he takes up residence in your heart, and he is changing it moment by moment, hour by hour. There is no defense you can enact to prevent this process from taking place. By faith, he is setting up residence in your heart. Paul goes on and he says, I bow my knees before the Father, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Paul uses this, this beautiful metaphor, this idea. He says, look, you are rooted and grounded in love. From agriculture, he says that, look, that you had the seed of faith working in your lives, that, that it came to be germinated, that it came to grow, that you are rooted, that you are firmly established, that this thing is going to grow, that it is going to produce fruit. Quickly following that, he says that you are grounded. Now, living here in Greenville, if you live in the city limits, you likely have this fantastic black soil. And you recognize that in the summertime, if we don't get very much rain, this stuff, I mean, it contracts and you have these car losing, or small child certainly losing cracks develop in your lawn. That I've never seen anybody get a lawnmower stuck before I moved to Greenville. You're mowing along and the thing falls, you're like, man, there's a pothole in my yard. I had a, I had a bird feeder there two weeks ago and now it's just in this chasm. So we recognize the importance of having a firm foundation. We recognize the importance of, of treating the soil. We recognize the importance of setting up all of these things because the house will shift 
if it does not have a firm foundation. But you can send out the best engineers at some point, that concrete will crack. But imagine you had the money to come out and lay a solid steel slab. Imagine you had all the money in the world and you could, you could set up a 52-inch thick solid steel slab. That shift as it may, the ground below, this thing is going nowhere. You see, when God comes in your life and the seed begins to grow and the seed begins to produce fruit, you are planted. You are rooted. And when God comes into your light, into your life, and He sets the foundation of faith in you, He gives you such a foundation, He grounds you so well that as everything shifts around you, this foundation will hold. And the way that Paul writes it, we recognize that this is something that has happened in the past for the Ephesians. This thing that happened in the past was done to them by God. It is God who accomplished this thing in their lives. And regardless of these things that happened in their lives, loss of job, death in the family, all of these things working in their life that would, would wreak havoc in their lives cannot fundamentally alter their salvation, because they have been planted by God, because they have been founded by God, and it is God who planted them, founded them, and will persevere it to the end. Paul says they have been rooted and grounded in love. And then he says, this is another component of my prayer for you, that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height in the depth. Paul, who has earlier spoken of himself in this letter to the Ephesians as the least of the saints or one of the lesser saints, puts himself into this category. Paul says, look, I am praying that you might have the strength to comprehend. Paul recognizes that this is not something they can do on their own. He recognizes that this is something they need an empowering to accomplish. And so he prays that they might have the strength to accomplish. Paul is making a reference to the infinite nature of God's love. You know, we think of, or I think of, the Mariana Trench, which is southeast of Japan. That if you were to be in the Pacific Ocean and just floating on the surface, and you were to look to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west, it all looks like water to you, as far as the eye can see. But if somehow you were able and you were to uproot Mount Everest and you were to set Mount Everest in that trench and you were to sink it below the surface, there would yet be one mile of water above the peak of Mount Everest before you would even begin to come close to reaching the surface of the water. You see, when we begin to think of God's love, It's vast. It's vast beyond all measure. It is beyond comprehension. We remember the hymnist who wrote these words. He said, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, or every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. See, Paul asks 
that they be strengthened to begin this process of comprehending the love of God. He moves on in verse 19, he says, And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. You see what Paul has done? He has given them a paradox of sorts. He said, look, I want you to be strengthened to comprehend what is the breadth, length, height, and depth. But this is what you need to know. The love of Christ. To know the love of Christ, it surpasses knowledge. Now the word Paul uses for know isn't this idea of being you know, acquainted with or having some vague knowledge of, but he is dealing with the idea of experiential knowledge. Now that you read the Bible and you say, I know, I know, I know. Jesus died to save me from my sins, that Jesus gave up his life, that he surrendered it willingly to redeem even a simple soul as I. But that those words would translate into experience in your life, that you would have a deep, visceral understanding of what that love is, that at the cellular level, at every part of who you are, would be transformed, would be informed, would be shaped by a knowledge, by an intimate knowledge and a familiarity with that love. And friends, that love surpasses knowledge. It surpasses knowledge. Paul gives them the unfinishable task. Paul gives them something which they cannot complete. He gives them something which they cannot endeavor to begin on their own. He says, look, I pray that God would strengthen you so, you could begin it, so that you could begin this task. I pray that you would begin to know the love of God, but I'm telling you this, that you will not know it until he returns or until you die. That it is the Christian's goal, that it is the Christian's task to spend their life plumbing the depths of the love of God, and only that by the strength of Christ. And then we see the maturity. We see the final picture of what this looks like. He says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, this is what Paul realizes. That it's salvation, that everything about those in Ephesus and everything about those of you in this room that have professed faith in Jesus Christ, that he has exacted change in your life. That at salvation, you became a radically different person. That he changed who you are. But that the rest of your life, you work out becoming that person. For the rest of your life, you work out being more and more of him and less and less of you, that as Christ takes up residence in your heart, as he is setting things straight, that you fully embrace what it is to have Christ living in your heart. You embrace this idea that you are strengthened with love. You embrace this idea that he is transforming you, that he has adopted you, that he has ransomed you, that he is making you in to his possession and making you more and more aware of the power of his love. Paul says that you may be filled In some sense, we could say that you may realize that you already are filled with the love of God. The the 
reality of who you are would result in the actions of what you do. But this is the beautiful thing. Paul prays this amazing prayer for the Ephesians. Prays that they'd be strengthened. He prays they would realize it. He prays that their lives would press on to maturity. And this prayer in 14 through 19 resounds in praise in 20 and 21. Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church. To him be the glory in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You see, this is the great praise that Paul returns to. Paul tells them that they need to be strengthened. He tells them that only God can get them there. And then he tells them it's impossible for them to attain to the love of God. But then he says this. He says, but we realize we pray to a God who isn't limited by what we think is possible. We pray to a God who isn't bounded by our understanding of how things work. We pray to a God, in verse 20, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. What Paul is telling them is that they need to seek out God, that they need to implore God that he would continue to work in their lives. And he is working according to the power that is within us. And it returns to the glory in the church, that the church glorifies God, and that Jesus is glorified. You see, if you'll embrace the idea that you are on a journey towards spiritual maturity, if you'll embrace the idea that you don't have it all figured out, if you'll resist the temptation to think that you have attained to the height of what you're willing to, to do to change in your life, if you'll embrace the idea that Jesus is not done with you yet, if you'll embrace the idea that there is more to come, if you'll recognize that He is the one working in you, then this church can be a beacon of glory for God. Then your life can be a beacon of glory for God. See, this is, this is the amazing thing. That we as Americans, we read this, and, and, and our automatic deal is, how does this apply to me? But as Paul addresses those in Ephesus, he's addressing it to them. He's addressing it to a corporate body. You are members, you are individuals of this body, but this does not work if you do it alone. This is not meant for any of us as individuals to pursue this to the neglect of ministering to the body broadly. We are a body. We pursue growth together. We pursue service together. We pursue broad evangelistic zeal together. God loves us as individuals, but he calls us to live in harmony corporately in community. So let me ask you this question. Are you being transformed by his love? Are you contemplating the great love that God displays in you? Are you being shaped by the presence of Christ in your heart? Are you being encouraged by his abode in your innermost being? 
because friends, the God of this universe, whether you sit here today and you proclaim faith in Christ, and if that is you, then you need to know that God loves you. You need to be strengthened by that love. You need to be encouraged in the hardship of life because of that love. But if you sit here today and you do not know Jesus, you have not surrendered your life to him, the truth for you is this love of God is poured out on you even while you are in rebellion. Even while you are yelling at God in anger, even while you are moving away from God. Paul writes elsewhere and he says, even while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Paul here in Ephesians says that Jesus has saved us by grace through faith. It's not something you did, it's something he did for you. The love of God is extended to all of humanity. And we see this beautiful thing. That in the breadth of the love of God, it is extended to the world. That in the length of the love of God, that it is extended for all eternity. That in the height of the love of God, it takes us from here to heaven. And in the depths of the love of God, it reaches down and it grasps and it pulls out the lowest sinner from the deepest reaches of this hell. Let me pray for us.